Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, we're joined by Karen Atia, global opinions editor and writer for The Washington Post, National Association of Black Journalists 2019 Journalist of the Year, and author of the forthcoming book, Say Your Word, Then Lead, The Assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Today on Run Tell This, our hot take on the vice presidential debate. How did Kamala do? Why is the debate format so terrible to begin with? And our surprising picks for who should moderate a future debate, plus the trials and tribulations of reporting while black. Join us for a drink. Run Tell This starts now. <sighs> I went down two flights of stairs for a drink. <laughs> Sorry, it's a Can't get your cardio in. I don't know, right? What's everybody drinking? Just a little white. Just a little white. A little right. anything, whatever Bay was pouring. Uh, right. Is everybody Japanese doing wine? wine? Oh, I feel like such a lush now. I have bourbon. Um, okay. <laughs> I didn't want to open my uh, Suntory tonight. I, I wasn't going to do that. So Not tonight. No, was- so we all just finished watching the debate. Um, you know, as much as I want to focus on substance, then something frivolous will come up that like dominates the conversation, which like right now, all I'm thinking about is that fly. <laughs> <laughs> to be a fly on Pence's wall? <laughs> on the border wall? To be a fly on the border wall? I don't know. Yeah, To be was- a fly on Pence. That was bizarre. <laughs> Well, the fly landed on his head right after he started implying that systemic racism wasn't real. So I felt like that level of bullshit is what attracted the fly. It was our ancestors, like literally <laughs> like sending a <laughs> message. Fly. So, yeah. I, so I literally tweeted at the beginning of the debate, debate that Kamala Harris went on stage with every black mama that ever existed. Like, like her... Her manner, and I was, and I wanted to be very careful, right? Because of course, when you're talking about a black woman in this context, aesthetics are gonna be a third rail, right? People are gonna, you know, people were already tweeting about, you know, her anger or, you know, whether or not she was gonna, gonna appear too aggressive and things like that, like that kind of bullshit, which is totally not where I wanted to go, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't paying too much attention to her aesthetically as opposed to paying attention to the substance that she brought to the debate. But the real difference, if we're honest, I mean, what we did, the, the major difference, or one of the major differences in this debate was the aesthetics, right? Like Kamala Harris looks like what America is becoming. Kamala Harris is woman. Kamala Harris is of mixed non-white descent of multi-ethnic non-white descent. Kamala Harris is under the age of 60. Um, And Mike Pence is an old white guy, right? And her affect and her mannerisms and, and the way she just got him together in the way that each and every one of us, and I'm sure especially me and Wes know <laughs> about, about being gotten together by a black woman, you ain't never been. Hey, why do you and West you, know that? Been, why do you and West know that as, specifically? As 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 black men, it's a lived and experience. I've, and, I pride myself met, on having those experiences. Both right. of the black women on this call have gotten me together at various points. Oh, well, exactly. only one, because this is the first time. This is the first time I've actually had had a conversation with Karen. I'm sure I will be gotten together by her before this conversation is <laughs> over. But but Mara, I know what that's like. So, Oh, right. absolutely. 
absolutely. Right. Um, so I, I just, I, I just think that that aesthetically, right? There was such a, a huge difference between the two candidates stylistically. Well, you talk about the, all the things that shouldn't matter, right? The stylistic things, but we know that very much they do matter because this is an opportunity for voters to really see the candidates and those subtle cues, the way someone looks, the way they talk, their mannerisms, their affectation, all of those things influence voters. And so when you're talking about a black woman, as Karen and I know, you're often trying to thread that needle, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be assertive, you have to know what you're talking about, but you can't be seen as aggressive or angry. Passion can often be confused with anger. Michelle Obama had to learn that lesson the hard way very early on in the political spotlight. Um, and you also have to be confident, but still warm. So it's this very difficult space that you have to occupy. And I felt like she nailed it. When I was seeing, I felt was a prosecutor, someone who was used to having to thread that same needle for jurors. And voters and jurors aren't that different, right? You have to make your case, but you have to make sure that they still like you. And so I felt like what we were seeing was years and years of courtroom training. And we were seeing Prosecutor Harris. She made her case in a way that was relatable and warm and non-threatening and non-aggressive and not too assertive. And it really reminded me of President Obama because he is another magical Negro who had to figure out very early on how to thread that needle and not come across as an angry black man when he was the most competent person in the room in most rooms. Um, so Karen, you're our guest. So I, wanna, I, I definitely wanna give you the floor on this one. What, what's your hot take on, on how uh, Senator Harris did? I mean, I thought she was excellent given what she had to work with. And I think one of the themes of this debate um, that will come out and already has, you know, come out on Twitter is just how much she had to fight for her own time that she was given, fight for the time that both parties agreed to. We saw Pence interrupting her multiple times. We saw Susan Page being virtually useless in checking Pence and, uh, you know, just Pence just railroading at times over Susan Page. And to me, like as a Black woman, that was triggering to be honest with you because we've all been there we've all been there where we think that we're we're playing by the rules we've done our homework uh senator harris came in and she came in with facts she came in with numbers she came in with and I, this is you know she just came in poised um and she came in also having like you said mara to play multiple roles and so she was addressing Pence. She was actually answering the questions. My God, like what a novel concept, something Pence didn't do. But I, like for her to have had to do so much labor in that debate to introduce or reintroduce in some ways herself, she started to, you know, talk about her record, talk about, you know, who she was, remind us that this is a historic moment for her. And then as the debate progressed on, she also had to, she had to play cop. <laughs> She had to, I mean, I was surprised that she didn't even try to gather Susan Page up because I just found the fact that she had to fight on so many levels as a woman, as a Black woman, at that level, it was just, it was really sad, I think. But she did amazing. I mean, she came, again, she came with the fact. She had some excellent pivots. Uh, I think, as we said before, like Pence, there were times where she was just, I don't know, she was trying to stop herself from laughing. I mean, when Pence had that moment when he, he told her to stop politicizing the virus when she brought up 
mm. not, you know, wanting to take a vaccine that Trump had, you know, Trump is the same one who advocated, you know, bleach at one point as a coronavirus uh, treatment. Like, just, like, she had to do so much. Like, Black women have to work so hard just to get, just to, like, for the basic minimum of being allowed to speak and adhere to the rules that we adhered to. So I, I found it really, I commend her. It was very, very obvious, right, that, that the debate tactic that Mike Pence wanted to use was to be more polite than Donald Trump, but to still run roughshod over Kamala Harris, right? That, that, he, was, that he was going to filibuster, that he was going to eat up her time, that he was gonna, gonna not, be, not be an obvious bully, but be a bully none, nonetheless. And I think it made him look smaller. I think it made him look less, quote unquote, presidential or, or less vice presidential. I think she handled herself extraordinarily well under the circumstances and wasn't drawn into uh, you know this this kind of back and forth that I think that he was attempting with the with the bully tactics and the filibustering to to goad her into as I watched and as I thought about it a few things surfaced for me uh, that I was thinking about uh, and I echo basically everything everyone has said but one of the things that occurred to me a lot is that and maybe it feels as if this is new or a different dynamic in this race from others, but that might be the currency bias, the bias of, of course, the thing happening now is different and new. And I, I think that happens sometimes. As I've watched both of these debates, uh, the, the, the Trump-Biden debate as well as this debate, it's very hard for me to conceive of there being a significant number or amount of voters anywhere in the country who are, who are legitimately undecided in this race. That, that it's hard for me to watch either of these debates and imagine that much has moved in any direction. Might an excuse to do the thing the person was always going to do have surfaced? Perhaps. But it's very hard for me. So even as I watch Pence and I think about the Trump voters, the supporters who I know, who I've interviewed, who I've talked to, I see him saying the types of things I want to hear. I see him giving the red meat to those types of folks. I see where we see, where, where I think more liberally inclined people are inclined to see him running roughshod over Kamala Harris. They see someone who, that sounds presidential. He's, he's seizing the podium and saying what he wants to say and vice versa, right? Where there's a world where a lot of people are inclined to say, well, look, Kamala Harris deal, is dealing with a dynamic that is unique and different than any other person that is, who has been in her position, the first black woman to ever be a vice presidential candidate. And also a fair number of people who are saying, why won't this woman speak up for herself more often? This feels like it's not, you know, from someone who I want to lead the country, I don't want some guy running all over them. I want her to, and that's not fair. Right. To be clear, we, we have to acknowledge the way that the systems of a country work. But what I'll say is that I think for people who are already not inclined to support her, they were provided with enough uh, to, to provide doubts. Um, I think the second and uh, I think the other things that occurred to me. Right. I want to give I, I want to be 
generous and charitable to Susan Page. Um, and, and I say that, not that I thought it was a particularly well-moderated debate. I thought the questions were pretty good, all things considered. Um, I thought that the extent to which one person was able to speak over the other over and over and over and over again and not answer any questions to me as a viewer is not what I'm looking for in a debate. And also many of the dynamics that affect Kamala Harris also affect a woman journalist in this position. Chris Wallace was able, ineffectively, but able to constantly get in these back and forth with candidates. And there is a world in which a woman, even a white woman, who got caught up in these back and forths would be looked on, dif looked at differently and would face some type of professional repercussion. I think of Candy Crowley attempting to fact check Mitt Romney in the 2012 debates and how that blew up in her face a little bit. Uh, she became the object to be attacked. And so I, I, I do, I do want to under, I do want to be charitable to the idea that a woman in this position is facing a different set of dynamics um, and how she might face some backlash by, in the same way that Kamala Harris interrupting Pence or speaking over him might face something, a woman moderator might also face that. But the, th and the third thing I'll say is I think that, and this goes back to my first point, where I'm not sure that I saw much from either candidate that is going to move people who are not already supporting them. Again, I think that's kind of the baked in dynamic of this race. I think there are very few people in the country who are going to show up to vote, who are racking their brains about if they support President Trump or Joe Biden. I just don't believe that a significant number of such people exist. And also, I, I did think that, um, and, and I've thought this about Senator Harris, I've covered her in Washington previously, I don't want to say I've graded on a curve for her, but I'm very sensitive to the dynamics she was facing that were different. And, and in the same way that I thought that there were moments where Pence clearly and obviously didn't answer the question that was asked, pivot to something else, there were moments where I thought Kamala could have done better or Senator Harris could have done better. I, I, I thought that the question about court packing, that she just did not answer. There, there yeah, is but to be fair, but to be fair, and this really, really irked me. And and this is how I feel. Anytime I'm in an interview and the interviewee asks me a question, my response is if it's a confrontational question, my response is always the same. I didn't agree to be interviewed. You did. So I'm not subjecting myself to your questions because that's not what we discussed. So I always have a really big problem with one candidate directly asking the other one a question and then trying to hammer them into answering it because those are not the rules of the debate. And to maybe I'm you know taking it a little bit too far because of my life experience, but it feels to me like you know you don't have any authority over me. You're not an authority figure. The moderator is. And so why should I answer your question? But Mara, do you think, and I'm asking, but, but do you think, right, in the ideal world, in an ideal debate, this is a conversation between these two people, right? There, there, should there be room for them to ask each other questions, to say, I, I want to know what my opponent thinks about X, Y, and Z? You know, I, I guess for me, there are two dynamics there. One, I, I do think that in some ways that is the setup. We got two people on the stage. They are conceivably or conceptually talking to each other. And, and, the, and the public is witnessing that conversation, right? They do respond to each other. They do build off of each other's points. But secondarily, what I think is also hard or difficult sometimes is that when we are on a stage, when we are talking, and this is some of the, I think some of the dynamic of a debate and why we do this, is we do have to judge people on how they think and react on their feet, right? So whether something is how the rules work or how they don't or what the... If a question has been posed, as an individual voter, 
do I care who's posed that question? Or do I want to know the answer to it? And, 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 I th- and again, I, I think that that's perilous and that's increasingly perilous depending on who you are and how you have to think about how you're being perceived. I believe all that is true. And also for me as a voter, you know, I remember when Pence, his cue up to this question, he keeps going at it over and over and over again. But, but he says at one point, he says, um, you know, they want to, they no longer want to play by the rules. They're losing by the rules and they just want to change the rules. And I'm sitting here as a voter and, and someone who's engaged on these conversations, who covers these issues. And there's a, and there's a very legitimate and actually think powerful response to that. And the response is the way our constitution is set up, when the rules no longer work, we have rules that allow us to change them, right? That the, the number of Supreme Court justices isn't set in the constitution for a reason, we get to change them. And that if the rules don't uh, allow for the will of the people, it's our responsibility to change the rules. Look, when we set up this country, there were slaves and that was the rules. Should we have never, I think that there was a pretty low hanging fruit response to that. And for me, sometimes I want someone to pluck that low hanging fruit, to engage in the debate, to have the conversation. But it's like, in general, I think we should always be questioning why we do things the way we do things. And part of what makes America what it's, what it should be is the fact that we have a system that is supposed to allow for, for flexibility and growth and to rethink whether slavery is okay, to rethink whether women should vote and all of that. Um, I mean, my, my question as I watched, as I watched the last debate, so watching this debate, as I listened to you guys' fantastic podcast last week with Soledad O'Brien, and I keep having the same question. It's like, you know, Wesley, you talked about, you know, the ideal debate. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, all right, debates are great Twitter fodder. They're great for sound bites. As you said this week and you said last week, you know, it's hard to imagine that people are really undecided at this point in time about who they're going to vote for. So what is all of this for, even for the moderator? The fact that like the moderator should be the power in the room, right? And it's, it's just part of it is trying to steer the debate into something that is useful but what is that what is the utility of this exercise you know if both sides are already you know pandering as we said I mean um you know Susan Page bless her heart (laughs) she did what she could I'm from Texas we say bless you know (laughs) bless her heart all right but I'm also just like you know and Wes as you alluded to um, and Chris Wallace, I believe, said this in his interview, um, you know, post the, the last debate where he was, you know, dragged, you know, from here to high heaven. It's like being afraid to fact check and to challenge. There's just like, we're just moving through from question to question to question. And, you know, many of us probably in this, you know, podcast and Zoom call have called out like our colleagues in the political media for like not pushing back, not, you know, fact checking, not our service to me at least is to clarity mm-hmm. and the truth and if we have a debate format that doesn't allow for that or doesn't allow for i just i just wonder sometimes i'm like why are we doing this <laughs> to the point where we, we have to drink i think it's great for the candidates <laughs> to be able to well just to like practice i mean in some ways it's like it's a it's a practice run you know to be able to answer questions on the fly to be able to think on the feet to be able to to really you know, have a grasp of their own policies and to have a grasp of the situation that's facing our country and the world. 
So, so, so I think if you want to answer to what the function is of the of debate, right, then we can talk, we can look at what we're all doing right now. And what, and, and what, so right. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. That's, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. So what are, we, what are we doing right now? And what were you doing when the debate was on? Let me tell you what I was doing when the debate was on. I just finished dinner, had a quick pre-drink, little quick, little sip, sat down. I got up, went in the kitchen, looked for a snack, got a bottle of water, popped some popcorn, brought my bowl of popcorn back over to the table, took, took a few notes as, as I was watching, live tweeted a little bit of stuff, was watching you, your Twitter feeds, all that, <laughs> three Twitter feeds in, in particular, right, to prepare for this conversation. And then when it was over, I got up and I poured another drink and got ready to do this. You know what that says? That the debate has become more entertainment than it's mm -hmm. become a part of the actual political discourse that le that that is leading someone. So your point and Wesley's point taken together, right? Tell us something about where about where we are. People are, and we know this, right? People are fractured in this country. People are people are split. It's a I don't I don't know if it's 50-50 or 60-40, whatever the numbers are, whatever the, the latest poll tells you, right? Um, Undecideds don't exist in the country, right? And the reason why undecideds don't exist in the country is because, because the parties, both politically and on policy, are, and, and, you know, their political rhetoric and their policy are so distant from one another, right? And so this debate doesn't serve the purpose of trying to fill a void with information. So the candidates don't necessarily have to come to the table armed with a, with a ton of information as ammunition to carry them through the debate. Now, I will say that I think that in both the last debate, uh, Joe Biden and in this debate, uh, Kamala Harris came to the table with more actual factual information than did, than did their opponents. But nobody in any of these contests, and not just in this election season, but in any of the previous probably three, right? So these candidates don't aren't trying to convince and the moderators then aren't trying to ask questions to ferret out information that will help somebody make a decision. These debates exist for just for a different purpose, which is why we can sit here with drinks and have this conversation and why I can sit there with a bowl of popcorn and watch the debate. Cause I don't have to worry about making a decision, a decision about who I'm voting for. And I don't think anybody does. But I'm, but I'm going to respond to that with, with two really quick things. One, I think you're right. If everything goes well, if people perform the way that they're expected to, if they don't say anything that surprises anyone, then it is strictly entertainment. But there is room for great damage. And so I think every candidate's motto going in is the same as, you know, the doctor's Hippocratic Oath, which is first, do no harm. I think that's basically their job. And when we speak about politics as entertainment, we have to acknowledge that is a huge reason why Donald Trump is in the White House. Oh, absolutely. Because CNN very early on saw that he was great for ratings. And Jeff Zucker, who is considered a television genius, who was the executive producer of the Today Show at 27 years old and took them on the longest number one run in the Today Show's history, was then at the time and still now the head of CNN and saw how good it was for ratings. And you know, the, I think it was the New York Times recently did a profile on him. I, I think it was New York Times. I think it was Ben Smith. Um, and they, you know, they quoted someone in the industry that said, you know, Jeff Zucker is a ratings whore. And I'm saying this as a ratings whore. So even among ratings whores, he's a ratings whore. And so that was their guiding principle in 2016. They would have Trump rallies up 
before he took the stage showing with a countdown, the showing the podium with a countdown to when he was going to take the stage. You can't buy that kind of press and legitimacy and excitement and enthusiasm. And so that view of politics as entertainment is part of the reason we are where we are right now. Read, read you something I tweeted yesterday. Yep. The thing we never talk about in 2020 is how complicit mainstream political journalism is in what happened in 2016. And that was a, a direct RT, uh, shout out to Assistant Tiffany Cross. Um, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're right. Like politics as, as, as entertainment gave us the reality show presidency. You're absolutely correct. Like I'm not, I wasn't making a value judgment there in saying that, you know, hey, it's okay that politics has, has become entertainment because I think that we've seen now through the last four years just how far down a path that takes us towards uh, to, towards destruction, really, in, in this country. Um, but the reality is people do treat it on some level like entertainment. Now, I don't know which, one is, which, which way is tail wagging dog. I don't know if it's, the, it's that the electorate will only consume political information if it's packaged as entertainment, or if those of us in this particular profession that we all belong to have delivered it in that way for so long that that's the only way that people recognize the information that, that, that they're being given. But that's where we are. That's what these debates are right now. Yeah, I, I would say, and, and you know, entertainment and particularly in American culture where entertainment I mean, it's also about money, right? I mean, one thing I, to, to sort of answer um, my musings about this, uh, you know, what's the purpose of debates? One thing I do think about is fundraising, okay, right? I mean, you just think of like a fight, a prize fight, you know, fighters go in, um, they do their thing, but they need, also need to play to the crowds because they need for the betters to be able to want to bet on them, you know, for the next time. And I, I believe I read in, um, in box, I think that the Biden campaign raised almost $4 million in the hour, first hour of the debate last time and uh, went to a 20, something like a 21 million fundraising like record, right? And so part of this is they're performing for, they're dancing for cash <laughs> in some way. I don't want to completely <laughs> cheapen it. Maybe it's the plum wine, you know, running through my veins. It it, a little bit, a, a little. We treat it as a prize fight. We treat it get as, you Get your booty you know, to the pole. I think that's a viral video that's yeah. going on right now. <laughs> just just get, oh, your, yeah. get, get your booty to the pole. That did. But it, it's not just pole. It's also cash. It's also, you know, I'm sitting here joining on from Texas and the Biden campaign making news for how much money they're dropping here in Texas because, you know, Texas is in play. People have been, try, been trying to turn it purple for a long time. Um, so one thing I am curious about is, and by the, I know this is gonna air you know, tomorrow, but I am curious about, did Harris and her performance, given you know, the dynamics and all of that, is that going to lead people, donors, to open their wallets and give? You know, I think part of it is, again, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me. I'm an opinions journalist, so I can have opinions, and I've gotta be, you know, I've got to be like straight facts or whatever. I could, I'm putting myself into this um, and people can take that for what it's worth. But I just think about how often, you know, black women, non-white women are told, you don't sell, you don't sell covers. You don't sell, you know, uh, paid less than white peers. I'm just really curious as to whether or not Harris's performance is going to motivate people 
draw on the heartstrings of people to open their wallets and give the Biden campaign a financial push. But yeah, other than that, this is, this is, it's, it's politics as, as performance. And I think it has serious implications. I, 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 I believe that again, you know, not to be on the black women told you so train, but I'm going to be on the black women told you so. Be train. on that train. I'm, I'm on the train. I'm right behind you, girl. Since, yo, <laughs> since 2016, ever since I went to, to, to the Republican National Convention, watch Trump. Ooh, child, that you went to that? Yo, I went to, I went to the depths. Um, in the, in the, and no, yeah, we were in Cleveland. It, it yeah. Was, it, it was fine. It wasn't. It Cleveland. was. Yes and no. And I just rem- I Wait, remember. Were you two there together? We must have been. We were both there. We I was. Both, we were there. Karen was too cool for me. She wasn't kidding with me. That is untrue. I, I was in Jack's <laughs> Casino by myself. Back Karen check. was at all the parties. With my Kamala <laughs> Harris, like, lion <laughs> You know, turn into. No, I mean, I just remember. And it was hard. It's, it was hard to, to have calculable facts there weren't any necessarily you know polls you could draw on but just going to that rally or 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 when Trump accepted the nomination and feeling the energy in that room it was almost religious and at that moment that's when I was like this man's gonna win because I've been Mm -hmm. in spaces with that energy and it's sometimes it's hard as a journalist we're supposed to rely on like it's hard to be able to put into words to my colleagues and telling them like this is real like yeah you know you're talking to Clinton's people and you're assuring us that you know even if Trump wins our institutions will save us it's going to be fine I'm sitting here and I'm telling you lives are on the line with this and here we are you know 2020 and so when we look at this question of politics as entertainment it is also with a tragic recognition that our lives depend on politics. There are 210 plus thousand Americans dead right now because we are playing politics with a virus that doesn't give a crap about whether you're Republican or Democrat. And it's just, again, I, I, I look at us now, I'm enjoying the wine, I'm enjoying the popcorn. I had my Chipotle during the, the debate, but I also sit and think about a friend of mine died. I had to. I got from a COVID, and how do I how do I square that as as I'm looking at the leaders who are supposed to be responsible for this virus, and I'm sitting here with wine and popcorn, and at the same time also trying to process the grief and the shock and the horror that we're going through a mass casualty event, and yet we're operating in a system that has treated politics as a ratings bonanza, and we're literally having the count running up on the body bags. Mm-hmm. It's 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 hard to process the, in some ways, sometimes the absurdity and the superficiality, mm-hmm. the very seriousness that we had. Our vice president, who was supposed to be the leader of our Corona task force or, or whatever it is. Um, who could not answer why Americans, why America has the highest death rate of any country. Wes, didn't you have COVID? I did have COVID. Oh, yeah. So when well, you're that, sitting that, there- as a, That was back in the day. <laughs> what, like five months ago, back ago? Like March. That was like seven years ago, right? But yes, that was like so nine COVID, COVID ago. 
So as a COVID survivor, when you're watching the vice president say, well, you're just trying to play politics with people's lives and not being able to give an account as to why we're, what, 4% of the world's population, but 20% of COVID deaths, and it's something that you lived through, what, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, well, look, I think that, and, and this is not even a, like as a COVID survivor, it's in fact much more as, you know, beyond having and have had friends and, and uh, people who I love who, who've had COVID as well. Um, it's also, frankly, as a journalist who's done reporting, you know, I spent time in Albany, Georgia, one of the hardest places in the country. And I, I remember going, this must have been June, May or June. I remember going down to Albany and attending uh, a funeral uh, for a big black family where they had had, it was the, I think this was the fifth person who had died. And it was the first funeral they were able to have. And they were having to decide who got to go. You know, they're only allowed to have 10 people graveside. This is a person in their 40s or 50s who's died, who has eight siblings, a wife, children, parents, right? And, and so who are the 10? Pick your 10 family members. Which kid doesn't get to go? Which sibling doesn't get to go? And I remember sitting there at the funeral watching and about uh, the grief and the difficulty and, and what had happened. You know, I think that, you know, I, I think that in many ways, those interactions at the beginning of the debate around COVID were among the most powerful. And I, and I also think, without, without weighing in on how I thought Pence did or how I thought Hamlet did, I also think that is the space where people are potentially movable, where there are people who are inclined to support the current administration who, who are aghast at the handling of the pandemic, who want to go back to a sense of normalcy. And even if they might agree with the administration's policies or, or politics, might say, but I'm tired of this. People are dying, people are sick, my kids aren't in school, I'm worried about my job. I'm, and so it's very hard to run as a chaos candidate when you own the chaos. That everything's screwed up and I've been in charge for years. It's, it's one of the reasons I think that the, they're gonna ruin the suburbs and there's gonna be riots in the streets attacks are much less effective this time than they were in 16. Because the riot in the street is Donald Trump's riot. He's the president versus a world where Trump could argue, Obama did this and I'm gonna fix it. One of the other things though that occurred to me, I think as Karen was talking earlier, and, and you know, it's not, we're not like a media criticism podcast, but we're all journalists who, who spend a lot of time and we think about these issues, right? And one of the things that occurred to me as we think about what we want out of these debates, what's the goal, what's supposed to happen, what's the ideal version of it? And, and I, I, I'm thinking almost that one of the ideal ways to deal with this in a world where the, where the country's so politically polarized, the parties are so different, the candidates are coming in with specific talking points to appeal to their people, they're not spending any, is almost to treat the debate as two individual interviews stapled together. It's not about getting them to talk to each other. It's not about, but, but rather because what it allows for, what that would allow for is better follow-up questioning. I think that's been one of the chief weaknesses in both of these cases. And so I'll give an example on both sides. Right? When Mike Prince is saying, well, Biden and Harris, they believe in this institutional systemic racism stuff. As an interviewer, I would look at Mike Pence and I'd go, well, 
I want to clarify on that. So, so what you're saying is you don't believe that there's structural racism. What does that mean? How do, and I would literally go two or three follow-up questions with him to try to find some nuance, to try to figure in the same way when Kamala Harris refuses to answer the question about the court packing, I go, well, excuse, excuse me, Senator, but, but, but to be clear, <laughs> the question was this, and what are you trying to say? And what do you, I think sometimes the issue is when they're supposed to be interacting with each other or it's, or we're so strict about, well, this time limit and this person and this question to that. I think you almost got to treat it as two different newsmaker interviews and you're trying to drill into each of the individuals to get them off of their talking points and force them into some nuance. How do you incentivize uh, a, a progressive and not in the political sense, but just how would you incentivize the kind of honest, discourse that moved a political conversation forward in any sort of substantive way when what the candidates have figured out um, is that talking to their base and staying sticking very strictly to a set of talking points is what brought them to the dance and, and that's who they're going to dance with. How, how do you change that, right? Because at a certain point, you can't, you can't, Force, we, you know, we've all been in a situation where we've interviewed somebody, whether it's a celebrity or a business person or an athlete or a politician, whoever the case is, where you're interviewing that person and you're trying, you, you have a question that you want them to answer. And they've been coached well enough that they're just not going to answer it no matter how many times and how many different ways that you drill into that question. And I think that these candidates at the highest level of politics in our country have that level of preparation. And it's the reason why they do debate preps. So they can not, not just so they can prepare for the attacks that are coming from the other side, but so that they can prepare for the questions that are coming from a moderator, right? That they, that they don't want to answer. How do you pivot? How do you, you know, what's your talking point for, for this? They've been prepared for, for that stuff. I'm not certain. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I agree with the need to do it. I'm just not really sure that anybody in journalism at this point has figured out how to make that work. I think to Wes's point, this isn't really the format for that because it doesn't so much lend itself to really pinning someone down. And when you mentioned kind of the difficulty of doing that in a one-on-one -on -one interview, you know, it's funny because as you know, when, we, when you're interviewing a celebrity and you ask them a question they don't want to answer or something that they have asked you not to ask, which I would never violate the terms of an agreement, but sometimes I, I have forgotten in the past, like legitimately forgotten, and it came up as a follow-up. And then what happens, their PR person swoops in, right, immediately. Like, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've had a PR person step directly in front of the camera and say, no, right, we're not doing this. So they have protectors, they have babysitters. The hardest ones to pin down are politicians because they don't have protectors, they don't have babysitters. That's not the, I mean, they do, but they would not step in front of a camera and that way the optics would be terrible. And so they, instead of that line of defense, are trained in how to do what you just described, to pivot, to answer the question that you wanna answer, to continue speaking even when someone is telling you your time is up, to do all of the things that we saw tonight at the debate. So I just don't think this is the format to get any real information and I don't think it ever will be. You can't put the baby back in the womb, right? Once it's born. Like well, this is where we are now. This is where American politics is right now. And I don't think these debates are ever gonna be really informative. I think the only thing that they are is a trap for huge missteps. But I think that's the only utility is when someone slips up and, for example, refuses to denounce white supremacy when they're asked directly to do so. Beyond that, they don't do much except give us an excuse to 
eat popcorn and drink with friends. And it's also about being fairly skilled in the subject matter that you're questioning them on, right? And pressing them on that information. So for instance, um, if we are, I mean, gosh, even look at the coronavirus debate right now, and we have political journalists that are looking at the, all the political horse race implications of all of this. We have, we have science, medical journalists, epidemiologists, and you all, if you sometimes look on Twitter, you see that there are science journalists, Twitter is like political journalists, like you're, you're way out of your depth here, right? <laughs> that like, you're just, this is not, you know, this is, this is not your lane. <laughs> Um, this is about science, I think, and we, we say this very often even about, about race, that treating race as a subject matter, critical race theory, as something that it's not just enough to be Black, <laughs> to be an expert on race and how it works as a force that shapes our societies. You have to know, you have to do the work, you have to do your, your, your research. As we've been talking, I think I've thought of three things I would do or three ideas, three options that could improve the utility of these debates. Um, they'll never do them and no one will ever listen to anything else. <laughs> three things that, I, that occur to me. The first is I've always thought we should have subject matter specific debates. Right. Let's go a full 90 minutes on climate change. Let's go yeah. a full 90 minutes on immigration. Let's do a full 90 minutes on COVID. Let's, let's answer, ask every follow-up question. Let's, because again, that forces you out of some of the talking points. Well, as we, what we know as journalists is by question three, you've used your can line seven times. So now you have to actually answer the question or, or at least come closer to it, right? And let's actually probe the depth of what someone understands or thinks and get into some nuance. The second thing is I would be very much for having more point of view moderators. I'd be much more interested in a Sean Hannity hosted debate and then a Rachel Maddow hosted debate, then insert Washington talking head whose entire job is to project they've never believed anything in their entire life. Because what we know is that very often the best questions come from people with skin in the game in one direction or the other. The most revealing questions, the most interesting questions, the most, right, that sometimes you want a moderator who goes, but that sounds like nonsense and isn't worried about napalming their own career if they say that, right? And I, and I think that that could lead to more honest or at least more revealing exchange. The third thing I would say, and this gets back to what we were talking about before, um, is I think that, you know, someone came to me tomorrow and, and, and offered to let me moderate a debate. Again, not a thing that's ever going to happen, but, but were that to happen, what I, what I would tell all of the, I would tell both candidates, both campaigns, screw the rules, there are no rules. We're not doing this time limit nonsense. We're, not, we're having a conversation among the three of us. If you peddle some nonsense, I'm asking seven follow-ups in a row. If, you, if the other candidate asks you a question, you don't want to answer, I'm, I'm going to follow up and answer. We are having a moderated conversation. But again, that's extremely risky for journalists because what journalists are thinking, again, we have to consider, and this is what I'm getting at with the Susan Page stuff earlier. These journalists themselves have a lot at stake when they moderate these debates. They're worried about their own reputations, about becoming memes, about, uh, about napalming their sourcing. About, and so their job is to keep their head down and get out of this. And often that's at the detriment of productive conversations with the voters. You want someone in there who goes, I can be the heel, 
I'm trying to get this information. Because as we know, sometimes as journalists, our job is to kind of be a dip. Our, our job is to kind of be a jerk. And then we get information and we put it in the newspaper, we put it on television. And so I think that I, I would love to find a setup, find a format where we could have journalists, where we could have reporters, where we could have questioners who are freed up to do that, to actually procure information for the voters and to force these candidates into real conversation. You also can't do that in a world where the, camp, where the campaigns themselves pretty much are setting the rules for the debates, right? One of the things that I saw on, saw on Twitter over and over again, and one of the questions that, that I've been asked is, you know, how come they just can't cut off the candidates' microphones. Why don't they just? He keeps interrupting her. About, well, you know, Trump. They were supposed to be in. able to this time, though. Did Didn't I say so. that? Am I making that yeah. up? Was that a dream? No. They probably were able to, but you have to have a moderator who's willing to do who's that. Willing to do it, right? Yeah, we had. Thank you. Who's going to say, Vice President Pence, with all due respect, shut up. Your time's up. She didn't. But how? Right? Well, like, again, it would have. It would have made her the story if she cut off a mic, right? I think that's right. also part and, of it. And, it's like that would have been a headline. And that's exactly what a lot of the, a lot of the moderators are afraid of, right? They, some of these moderators spend time trying to not be the story and trying to err on the side of not being the story, trying to err on the side of, you know, I'm sitting in between Mara and Wesley and Mara interrupts Wesley five times and I cut Mara's mic off. To your point, Karen, Mara's now raising money before, before the debate's even over. Mara's team has a fundraising email going out talking about how, uh, how unobjective and how biased Keith Reed was as a, as a moderator. And so he will not be silenced, right? Exactly. So the campaigns are these powerful entities that have so much control either directly in the process of how the debate is structured or have figured out all of the little nuances and the little and the political tricks that they can that they can use to subvert the objectivity or to subvert the, the, the purpose of the debate in and of itself. And so, you know, walking into that space, the moderators are trying to then find their own safe haven because everything that happens in, happens during a debate is a third rail. Everything that Wes talked about would be great if it happened during the during the debate, except that any one of those things, if they actually happen during the debate, would ether the career of the journalist who was asking that question. Again, pretending to be objective doesn't work here. We see that, right? But going 180 degrees in the other direction where you have somebody that has a clear point of, point of view runs the risk of just completely, um, of, of just completely subverting the entire process. I think that's right in the general election debates. Where I think that might be different is in the primaries, right? One of the things I will say that I think is a fair criticism that comes from the right. I think I heard Ted Cruz making this uh, recently. Or oh, something. God. Are you really about to agree with Ted Cruz? You, Wes. Have you had that much to drink? I'm going to empty the rest of my bottle right now. And, 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 and the point, I need more bourbon. And the point was, he said, he was like, you know, he's participated in X number of Republican primary debates. And he was like, I've never participated in a debate where the moderator is going to vote in the Republican primary, right? And, and, and what I think is legitimate about that is that, yeah, let, if, if the Republicans are running the Fox News primary, let Sean Hannity host it. 
Let Tucker Carlson, because because they are going to ask questions that their voters care about, right? Or whatever you think of him has a relative expertise in what those types of voters care about, right? As does a Tucker Carlson, as does a Megyn Kelly, as does a whomever. Well, I think what what Wes is describing, which I actually have never thought of this before, and it sounds incredibly intriguing, because then you kind of cut through the conspiracy theories. You're like, okay, fine, let's all agree that there's somebody eating babies somewhere, okay? So we don't even need to debate that. It might be total bullshit, but let's just put that aside. So then let me ask you all what the nuances are on climate change or on a Supreme Court nominee, or whatever the particular issues are that are important to that group of voters. I mean, that, that on, a, on a primary level, I think that could actually be incredibly effective. Or, or lay out how you're gonna stop the baby eating, right? Like, let's get, like, it's no longer right. a debate about whether the baby exists or not. It's a, I mean, if the seven of you all think the babies are being eaten, let's hear some plans about how you're gonna stop. Can I? <laughs> like, let's drill into it. As opposed to a debate about does it exist or does it not? Right, because we live in a world where we live in two different worlds. Half of us think the babies are being eaten, the other half don't. Let's not have a debate where we argue about whether it's happening or not. Let the right. seven people who think it's happening talk about some solutions, and the, and the other seven talk about whatever. But I'm just gonna say, run tell this, Wesley Lowry, the debate moderator, 2024. <laughs> yes, let us These put all that. Ex- into the ether, hundred percent. The point of the podcast is to get me one debate <laughs> where I ruin my entire career with all these bad ideas, and then it's a wrap. I will say, <laughs> why not put somebody who doesn't really have all that much to lose? Like you audition people for great, like student journalists. People are just aren't afraid, right? Okay, yeah. so 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 everybody, who's your number one? like bucket list debate moderator. Oh, like, oh they, uh, I know this one off the top because I have thought about this. Mehdi Hassan. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love him. This I dude is gangsta. And, and give him the power to cut off mics. Yes, Mehdi Hassan. I will say there's something when I cover global journalism um, for the op-ed section in, in the post. And I often hear from foreign journalists who are used to a more aggressive uh, a style of questioning and also who are used to questioning authoritarians like they comment on how we've done and dealt with Trump for instance and they're just like Americans what are y'all what are y'all doing well because we're not used to dealing we're with not, authoritarians oh we gonna learn we, we have learned learn today we are we are learning the heart of it I would second that for Mehdi Hassan even um Jonathan Swan Axios like there's, I don't know, something about foreign dudes that just get the job done. Let me not do that. Well, Uh-oh. Yeah. So talking about no, 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 debates. No, no, no. We got to go back to your Twitter timeline. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you've been on one on the timeline this week. So <laughs> any foreign dude followers of Intelligence? Oh, my God. Uh, me up. I mean, if you, you can campaign for moderator, I can campaign for dates, all right? Like, it's been a long I'm so there. I'm with I'm a, it. I'm, I'm going to just it. sip and leave it alone. Drink. Everyone drink. <clears throat> Anyway, I'm just saying. You might need to take a longer sip. You okay, wait, so what are, you, what are you guys' picks? For me, I think that the answer is someone like an Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace, mm. or a, a, a documentary style it could be someone like a, a Lisa Lang. It could be someone like a, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's someone in a, like a, a more documentary style where they're used to doing longer, more engaged follow-up question-laden interviews. 
or someone who's completely gonzo. David Carr, where he's still alive. Someone who's going to look at the candidate and go, you're full of it. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, answer my question. Like, well, who cares about this thing you just said? And, there were, and the reason we love those folks is because they're such an outlier that most journalists, and I don't even mean this derogatorily, are kind of go along to get along. The last thing we want is any controversy or anything, or we want to get through this interview and no one to even remember we were the ones who did it. And I'm a, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go one traditional journalist. I'm gonna go somebody who's not a traditional journalist. And these are both um, these are both black women. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Erin Haynes um, because she is so studious mm. as a like. I could just see her obsessing over the preparation um, to ask each and every question. If you don't know, if y'all don't know who Erin Haynes is, she's uh, editor at large of the 19th, um, which is a website, nonprofit news website focused on uh, women, particularly women in politics in the United States. Um, so check her out. My number two or really 1A on that list would be, I think somebody like a, like a Ava DuVernay Ooh, would make a fantastic debate moderator. Because I think, because A, she's, a, she's not a journalist, but she's a storyteller. And she has that, that documentary sort of background that Wes talked about, and the ability to be able to, to do a lot of research um, and to bring to bear some historical facts and to present them in the, in the kinds of ways that a journalist might. So I could imagine the preparation uh, being there, but, but also she's a filmmaker. And so she's, and so she, even though she would be meticulous about presenting information and, and challenging power and asking questions. So before we go, Karen, you have a book coming out. I do. I would love to hear about the book. Yeah. And I'm, in the revision process. Um, yeah, so uh, as some know or, or might not know, I so I'm a, you know, was working with Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who, uh, gosh, almost, what day is today? It's, it's still really fresh. I mean, two years ago was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And I was the one at the post who um, recruited him, hired him, and worked with him for a year. And then in the aftermath of the murder, just really, you know, doing all that I could to to try to raise awareness for the case and, and push for, for justice. So that's what I'm working on. It's basically an account of that um, from my perspective, that time and what it's what it's like to really be engaged in a struggle for justice and the intersection of all some of these systems that we're talking about, media, Trump, authoritarianism, as far as, you know, Saudi. So um, the book is called Say Your Word and Leave, um, and hoping for a March release date. Wesley, I have a lot to thank Wesley for on this. Um, he's been one of my, like, rocks and, and, and even just readers uh, for early drafts. And... Yeah, so a lot of this, when it comes to when it comes to politics and when it comes to debate, none of this is a game to me. I'm always, I will always and forever be reminded, you know, that our this is all life and death. And as a journalist, um, realizing that you know, 
Some of us are scared about asking the wrong debate question and that we'll lose our access. Me, I work with journalists every day who are afraid of losing their lives for what they're writing. And I hope that, you know, once, once this is out, I'll be able to, you know, fully, fully tell that. And so, so yeah. So Karen is very modest. Um, and I haven't read the most recent version, but the parts that I've read and seen, I mean, it's, it's a moving piece. It's a moving uh, story. And it, you know, this role of, you know, we've talked a lot in this conversation about as journalists often not wanting to be involved and sucked into these stories and to be the editor, to be the point of contact and later be one of the chief campaigners on Jamal's behalf. You know, Karen took on a lot. And, you know, I think that the readers of this book are really going to benefit from uh, getting to go along that journey with her. As a Black woman editor, to have the space to say my side or, or to say how I saw things that is just different than uh, what you see in the media and in the press about in general, about the Middle East. I, I think about that a lot. And as journalists, that's all we've got is our words. That's what we traffic in, that's what we deal with. And so we have to take care of them. To be you, to be a black woman, to be at the, the newspaper of record in the nation's capital, to be the global opinions like people don't understand what that means y'all i don't want people who listen to this to ignore or to miss how important it is that you're a part of this conversation and that you sit where you sit i want people to recognize how meaningful your role is and and just and let that not be lost on anyone absolutely We're, we are giving you your flowers here oh, right now there were plenty of times where i've wanted to give up right like i it's 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 not just that it's also fighting for and which is why what happened with kamala harris today in some ways was was triggered i i saw myself in that right where you were fighting just to have space to like say what you think who you are and she's she's done it she's 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 there i've i've gone through that been questioned and 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 uh silenced and had people erase me from my own work and uh and but i keep going and i say that in full recognition that there are so many who don't particularly for black women there are so many who leave this profession because they're just tired. Right, that's a whole other conversation. But that's a whole yeah, other conversation, but we should have it. So next I would, on the run tell this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, I feel like there is a whole conversation to be had about the bullshit that's happening in newsrooms. Mm-hmm. And that will be a very long conversation. It's gonna require a lot more liquor than I drink tonight. Um, but I feel like it's a conversation that needs to be had because people don't realize how bad it is. It's, it's, it's a mess. And it, it's like in the attempts to fix the mess, like more messes are created <laughs> right now. And, and it's just, man, I don't, again, when we talk about our profession and our profession that is supposed to reflect our society and supposed to work towards the good of, where we hope to want to be as a, as a society. And it yet remains, I think on average, wider than the average uh, workplace. 
we are also having to, to fight for ourselves while we're fighting to get the truth from our interview subjects while we're fighting to literally like survive and walk down the street and not be pulled over by cops. Like black people <laughs> deserve all, this country doesn't deserve us. Like <laughs> what we have to, to go through, but we still do. So many of us still show up. But this when it comes to newsrooms, I feel like it's, it's bigger than, it's bigger than any other sector because we are the fourth estate of democracy. And we are the well from which the public draws their information about racial understanding. And that well is poisoned. And that's the problem. So that's why I feel like we need to have this conversation. And that's why I feel like it's important to every single American, because that's where they're getting all their information from. And that space is poison. <laughs> and we need to purify it. And the sad part about that, as we, we talked about the dynamics with moderating, moderating the debate and the, the fear that journalists have with you know, asking questions and being seen to be part of the story, is that it is frightening to challenge your own institution. It is frightening yeah. to challenge the institute, the holy institution of journalism. And when you realize that the objectivity that we speak of, those rules were created by white men who never had to create rules before to accommodate us, the system, these institutions, these systems were made for us, right? And it's just, I think that's part of why it is so important. Um, we have to be twice as, not just twice as good, but sometimes three times as brave to challenge and to unpoison the well. Wesley, you know, passing the flowers back to you, you've been so brave and eloquent about like not only challenging institution specific but even just how we think about what objectivity is and how we think about how do we think about ourselves as a society and talk about ourselves how do we wield our power and I think ultimately that's what it comes down to that those that run our institutions are refusing to give up power are refusing to give us the power to basically do our jobs. Karen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We kept you much longer than planned, but we had a fantastic oh. conversation. No problem. Like, we'll, like, we'll have to have her back. Sorry, sorry about being train. a little <laughs> sorry about being a little thirsty about four minutes. You still got a full glass of wine. This is my second. This is my oh. second. It's a little, it's a little I, I need to pump the brakes on it. I just I want to be you know, coherent for you guys, but you know. <laughs> listen, as long as we're having a good conversation, it's A-OK. -okay. And I have a lot of cousins in Italy. You know, my father's Italian. He married a black woman. So I'm going to get right go. on that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at this underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.